0: Good morning and welcome. What a blessing it is to gather together for worship of the Lord. A uh, whole lot of announcements in our announcement bulletin. Encourage you to read that later and uh, and to take into consideration the many opportunities for learning and growing and fellowship, uh, all of which are so good for us and such a blessing. But right now, the Lord has called us to the greatest blessing we get to know, and that's the blessing of gathering as God's people to worship, and we can do that only by His power working in us and through us. So let's ask Him for His strength. Let's ask for His blessing as we join our hearts together in a moment of silent prayer. Father, you are the one who has gathered us in this place. You know the hearts and the lives of each one. You know which of us are wrestling with doubts and fears, which are overjoyed with your provision. Lord, we ask that you would work within each one of us to enable us to look to you and to give you the glory and the thanksgiving that you so perfectly deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord calls us to worship with this reminder from Hebrews 10 of the blessing we've been given. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now His greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 317. Come, thou almighty King. 317. i Deuteronomy 5, we hear how God's servant Moses reminded the people of that which they already knew, that as those whom God had set apart for himself, as those whom God had freed from their slavery, they were called to a life that was devoted to him, a life of conversion, turning away from the sins that come natural, embracing that all of life love for God, for which we were made. And so he speaks also to us who have been delivered from our slavery to sin. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, May rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you. To keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. As the Lord your God commanded you. That your days may be long. And that it may go well with you. In the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Moses reminds them these words... The Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me. All the heads of your tribes and your elders and you said behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? They were overwhelmed by the power and the holiness of God such that they feared God. Drawing near to Him. Now on the one hand, we really need to be struck by that. Reminded of the greatness of the holiness and the power of our God so that we ourselves would be humbled before Him. And at the same time, we need to remember the promise that we heard that called us to worship. That because of Christ, we now are able to draw near without fear. Because He's paid everything. He's opened a path into God's presence. And so while God remains holy and perfect and pure, He has purified us. He has removed all the stain of sin, all the consequence of our rebellion so that we're able to enter His presence. How amazing is that? But it's all and only because of what Jesus has done. And so our response to this law must be twofold. On the one hand, resolving to devote ourselves to showing God our gratitude, to to devoting our whole lives to Him, but at the same time, bowing humbly before Him, acknowledging our sins, confessing that our hope lies not in us, but in Christ. We do that this morning by singing together the words of Psalm 130, which you can find in Selection 273. We'll sing all the stanzas as our confession, both of sin, but also of faith. Number two
1: seventy three.
0: Response: The Lord reminds us of the confidence he's given to all who trust in him and calls us to wait patiently, day by day, expecting the Lord to change us, to transform us, to bring us more and more into the image of him who saved us. He says in 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, we need to live as those who have been redeemed. And as we do, we gain confidence that God really has saved us, that Christ really has redeemed us and given us that eternal hope. And it's in that confidence that we come before the Lord in prayer, um, You uh, may have seen this past week a couple of prayer concerns. Um, One is for Seth and Miriam with their adoption process. Um, They've had some really encouraging developments uh, in the past week or so. Uh, Also some difficult uh, red tape to cut through. So just continue to pray for encouragement and, uh, and for God to lead through that. Um, Also, John Timmerman's grandson, Barrett Gritter. John is usually with us in the evening service. Um, He had a uh, grandson born on Monday, uh, son of his daughter Bethany and her husband Nate, uh, who suffered from some pretty severe physical defects. Um, Barrett had surgery on Friday that went extremely well. So we're thankful for that, and and, uh, please continue to pray for him. And then... uh, We have consistory and deacons meetings this week, but also Classes Michigan is uh, planning to convene on Tuesday, Uh, and that always calls for our prayer uh, as the churches deal with matters of concern. So let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we gather in your presence this day, and we hear your word, it reminds us that we cannot, that we dare not stand before you on the basis of what we have done or accomplished. Because our every deed is tainted by sin. And because our hearts are so fickle that we easily slide in the same day from being devoted to you and and desiring to do all your holy will to to wavering with doubt and fear and unbelief and and craving worldliness. Lord, if we rested on us in even the smallest bit, we would be of all people most to be pitied. But you have promised to hold us fast, to never let us go, and to bring to completion that work which you have begun within us. Grant that we daily might see the evidence of that work that you're doing within us, and that we might rejoice at the powerful transformation that is at work by your Spirit's power. Lord, we pray for each member of our congregation. You know the needs, the doubts, the fears, the worries, the struggles, the challenges that we face, as well as the the joys and the triumphs and the celebration that fills our hearts. Father, we pray for each one That you would provide according to the needs of each day. We ask that you would draw us each closer to you. That we might trust you more and more truly. And see our lives being conformed to your purposes in Christ. We ask that you would enable us to disciple one another. With boldness and with tenderness. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the humility to be discipled. And to acknowledge that you're using our brothers and our sisters to draw us closer to you. Father, we thank you for the answers to prayer that you have provided. We thank you for hearing so many prayers on behalf of Barrett Gritters and the surgery that he sustained on Friday. We pray that you would continue to provide healing and strength for him, that you would provide encouragement for Bethany and Nate And that you would show forth your power and your goodness in this child's life as you bring forth the healing and the strengthening that he needs. We pray too for Seth and Miriam and Landon and that whole process. Lord, we ask that you would show forth your power there and that you would grant the patience and the encouragement that is needed by every. Person involved in that process. Lord, we ask that you would use this process to remind us of your great love and faithfulness in adopting us as your children. Lord, we thank you for the children that you have brought forth in our midst and also that you, those whom you are bringing forth, bless those that are growing in the womb that they might grow strong and healthy, that they're Mothers, as as that growth is happening within, might be encouraged by your provision and your grace, and that those families might each one be prepared for receiving these children. We pray for our members with long-term ailments. We pray that you would continue to strengthen and provide healing for Dan and for Linda and for Sherry. For other members who have long-term pain and ailments, we think of Norm in particular. Lord, we thank you for the healing that you have provided for Jamie and that you are continuing to provide for, uh, for her. We ask for our members who are unable to be with us, uh, who long to be. We think of uh, Bruce and Linda and Marge, uh, Jane and Mary Ellen and Geneva. And Lord, You know the other needs that weigh upon us. We pray that You would provide as only You are able, as the one who knows our needs before we do, who knows us inside and out, body and soul. Lord, we confess that we trust You for all our needs. Bless our children and our children's children. Grant them the strengthening and the encouraging that they need place within their lives both joy and sorrow, both ease and struggle, that they might learn that they are powerless apart from Christ, but that their faith in Christ might grow and deepen. We pray for those preparing for marriage, that You might equip them well for that. And we pray Your blessing upon the marriages in our midst, that they might be Strengthened and deepened so that through them the world might see the amazing love of Christ for his bride, the church, and the church's deep devotion for her beloved. Lord, we pray for this congregation, for its strengthening and growing. Lord, you know the struggles in our midst, those who are wrestling with doubts and fears and worries, but also those who are are growing and, and rejoicing in you. Lord, help our elders and our pastor to shepherd those who are struggling and to be on guard against those who would lead astray. We pray for our deacons that they would work powerfully at guiding the church in, in service and in the use of the gifts you've entrusted to us. We pray your blessing upon our consistory and our deacons as they meet this week. Give them wisdom and use them to bless the church we pray in, and bless the delegates to Classis Michigan that they might have wisdom, that they might be unified in their decisions and discussions and that they might serve the church as well. We pray for our family members afar who are in need and, and friends. We think of Chris's mom, Jackie. We pray that you would bless her and her uh, health struggles. And we ask that through those struggles you might show yourself powerful. Enabling her to see that you are the one who has strengthened and blessed. We pray for Michael's aunt, Lindsay, that you would give her strength and encouragement and uh, healing both in body and soul. We pray for um, Grace's brother, Jonathan, on deployment, that you would provide for him and for his family and bring him home safely. Lord, we pray for our world. There is so much turmoil. There's war in Eastern Europe, there's saber rattling in the Far East. And it all reminds us that we are powerless. That there is no way we can fix all that ails this world. There's no way that we can be confident in the future when the future is in such flux. But we know that you are the King of Kings. Remind us and your people in everywhere, in every place that they gather, that all of these matters, all of these struggles, all of this strife, it's all according to your plan. That you are the one who brings peace and you are the one who allows war to develop. That you are the one who brings low and who rise, raises up, who establishes nations and then determines their fall. And so, Lord, enable your church to be a a pillar of certainty in a world that is filled with doubt and fear. So that we might show others where true hope is found. And so that we might proclaim peace in the midst of strife. Father, we pray that you would equip us to that end this day. As we hear your word, as we worship you, as we disciple one another through catechism and Sunday school and fellowship opportunities. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us all of this day to enjoy a foretaste of the fullness of your kingdom as we begin and end this day in worship. And as we fill this day with that which turns our hearts to you. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to look together to God's Word, let's stand and sing. We're going to sing a, a rendering of a portion of Psalm 119, which reminds us how God has given us His Word to turn us from that strife, from that sin and rebellion that comes so natural to all the world. We'll sing from selection 239, number 239, all the stanzas. scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 2, the second half of the chapter. And then we'll look to a summary of scripture that we find in uh, our Confession of Faith, article 24. Now James is very concerned. James is actually one of, most likely one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And James is concerned that God's people not act in a way that is presumptuous. Trusting explicitly in God's grace, which is good. But then living as those who are still devoted to sin and rebellion. And so he says in James 2, starting in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. Now that is one of many passages that is summarized for us in article 24 of our confession. when it says that we believe that this true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit, regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man for we do not speak of a vain faith but of such a faith which is called in scripture a faith working through love which excites man to the practice to the practice of those works which god has commanded in his word these works as they proceed from the good root of faith are good and acceptable in the sight of god for as much as they are all sanctified by his grace nevertheless they are of no account toward our justification For it is by faith in Christ that we are justified even before we do good works. Otherwise they could not be good works any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Therefore we do good works, but not to merit by them. For what can we merit? Nay, we are indebted to God for the good works we do, and not he to us. Since it is he who worketh in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us therefore attend to what is written. When ye shall have done all all the things that are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which it was our duty to do. And in the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. Moreover, though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them. For we can do no work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And although we could perform such works, still the remembrance of just one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus then, we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Amen. Beloved saints of God in Christ, there is a disease which sometimes afflicts those in the church. The disease is quiet, it is contagious, and it is deadly. It is the disease called presumption. This disease afflicts those who claim to be Christians, who become professing members in a faithful church, who learn to speak the theological language of the church. In worship, they know when to stand and when to sit. They gain a deep familiarity with the songs of the faith. But for all of that, there's no real difference between their life and the life of their neighbor who never darkens the door of the church. They never crack open their Bibles, never struggle with how best to apply the precepts of God's word, never deny themselves for the sake of the Lord. Their mouths have spoken the words, but faith has never penetrated their heart. Those are the symptoms, dear friends, of the presumptuous Christian. Although that's not strictly correct. Because one who is presumptuous cannot actually be, in truth, a Christian. Such a person might speak the words, but the truth has not penetrated their heart. And to that their lives bear witness. Now countless times in the history of this church. We have been blessed to witness. The sign and seal of God's covenant. Bestowed upon our children. Each time we witness that sacrament of baptism. God testifies to us. Upon this one. Is the promise of my salvation. Upon this one is the promise of my adoption. Upon this one, I have set my sign and seal. But when we administer that sacrament, we also make a promise. We receive an obligation as God's people. And that obligation is to teach them what that sign and seal meant and how they are commanded to receive it. That they may not simply presume that all is well because they've been baptized. That they may not simply think, well, everything that needs to be done has been done and now I can go about doing whatever I want. But instead, that they need to truly trust in the Lord Jesus and to reveal that true faith in all that they are, in all that they do. It's our calling to show them that. It's our privilege to to show and teach them that. And it's to remind us of that task, and to remind us of the importance of that fruit, that our forefathers wrote Article 24. Here we find both a warning and an encouragement about the change, the transformation, that true faith invariably works within God's people we confess here that true faith brings forth, always, brings forth holy obedience. That's our theme this morning. True faith brings forth holy obedience. And the first thing we see here is that this holy obedience is inseparable from our faith. Now the heart, really, of what we confess here is that sanctification, what we might term holy obedience. Sanctification is inseparable from our faith. You recall how in recent weeks we've seen that faith is absolutely essential. It's the means by which we receive all that Christ has done for us. It's the way that we're united to Christ and made to share in all his merits. And we've seen that that's a gift from God. It's God through the work of the Holy Spirit who enables us to to hear and understand the Word. It's God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, who shows us the truth of our sin and the ugliness of it, the misery of it. It's God, who by the work of the Holy Spirit, enables us to trust in Christ. To cast all our cares on Him and to stand before the Lord confident because of what Christ has done. First to last and throughout, that's the work of God within us. And what makes that gift even greater is God's promise to never remove His Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit always and only to those who are the elect. And Jesus says in John 10 verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit does more than give us the faith by which we're joined to Christ. Imparting faith to us is important. It's absolutely essential. But then, having given us that faith, the Holy Spirit uses our faith to convert us over time into bearers of God's image. Kids, I want you to think about that. Do all people bear God's image? There's a sense in which we have to say absolutely, right? In that we were created to reflect the creativity of God. To reflect the, the moral ability of God. We all were given souls, right? All of this is, is intended to allow us to bear God's image. But as long as we remain in our sin, that image is corrupted. It's like a fun house mirror. You, you you ever go into one of those houses of mirrors? You go in there and in part it's disorienting because you can't tell what's a passageway and what's a wall, but but then they have those mirrors that distort reality. You can tell it's you because of the color of the clothes, because of certain features, but the features are so distorted. In one mirror, you're you're extremely squat and fat, and in others you're tall and lean, and and in some you're wavy, and in others you're crackled into a million different pieces. And that's what happens to the image of God within us because of our sin. It's still there, but it's distorted. It's shattered. It's so transformed that it becomes a lie because of our sin. But when we come to Christ, when by faith we are joined to Him, Galatians 5 says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Sin no longer has power over us. It Well, in a sense, the, that part of our nature that was enslaved died on the cross. And so we're freed. We're freed to begin doing what's right. We're freed to begin doing what's pleasing to God. So, through faith, the Lord frees us from that bondage to sin, and through faith he begins causing us to live a new life. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. To be sanctified is to be made holy. That's God's will. That's God's desire for us. And if that's what God wills for us, then what can prevent it from happening? That's why we read in our Assurance of Pardon, 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life, all things that pertain to life, that's a knowledge of our sin, a knowledge of Christ, the faith that joins us to Him. But He hasn't stopped there. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which means that now He's transforming us. Now He's teaching us to put off sin. Now He's teaching us to put on the truth of the image of God. That's the power of conversion. And God has given it to every one of His people. Every one who embraces Christ by faith. So what's that look like? What's that involve? Above all, it involves learning to submit to God. In First Thessalonians 4, Paul reminds the church how he taught them. Not only to trust in Christ but also to strive to please God. To that end, he taught them God's law, which humbles us, which shows us where we need to turn away from our sin and from our rebellion. But then, then he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you learn how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion, Right, So that's what the law does. When empowered by the Holy Spirit, it teaches us to strive for holiness by putting off the sin, by rejecting that impulse to rebellion, and instead by pursuing self-control, by pursuing that which is holy and pleasing to God. The law in its summary remains You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first part of sanctification, learning to love the Lord, learning to do what we do, whatever it is, out of love for God, driven by love for God, pursuing a life that reveals that love. And a second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we truly love God, then we will show that love for God by loving our neighbor. We'll show that love for God by loving those made in His image. So the sanctification to which we're called will be seen in submitting to God, submitting to His law, and striving for a holiness that reveals our love for Him and our love for our neighbor. That is the sanctification that always lives in the heart of those who have faith in Christ. Now, sometimes that work is slow. We begin to apply God's law to our lives and then we slide backward. We show love to our neighbor today and tomorrow we curse at him. Our our conversion advances slowly, but it advances. Regardless of how fast or how slow, how consistent or how inconsistent, If we have true faith, we will demonstrate that faith in the transformation of life that the Holy Spirit is working within us. But our confession rightly says it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man. It is impossible that those who have true faith decline to show it. And that's impossible because God promised that it would happen. He promised that the Holy Spirit would change us, would transform us. That's what James was focusing on in James 2. He asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He asks that because anyone can claim to have faith. But true faith will always show itself by the conversion that accompanies it. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, he says. If a man says he has faith, he says he's a Christian, but nothing in his life is changing. He's living in a way that's just like the life of an unbeliever. Well, then his life is showing that his words are a lie. There's no turning away from sin. There's no striving after holiness. There's no love for his neighbor in the way that he acts or speaks. There's no love for God in the way that he submits to his commands. He says he has faith, but there's no evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit within him. And he says, if that's the case, then you need to reevaluate. Do you really have faith in God? He uses Abraham to illustrate. Abraham is a man whose faith cannot be doubted. God himself declared that Abraham was righteous on the basis of his faith. He's the poster boy for justification by faith alone. Romans 4. However, James points out that Abraham's faith was proved by its obedience. He refers back to Genesis 22 when God said that son of yours, the one through whom the promise is going to come, I want you to take him on the mountain that I show you and I want you to sacrifice him. That's unthinkable to any of us to sacrifice your beloved child much less the child through whom God promised amazing blessings to all the nations. But Abraham has learned to trust God no matter what. So he grabs Isaac He takes some servants, they go. When he sees the mountain that God pointed out to him, he leaves the servants behind, he takes his son, he builds an altar, he lays the wood on it. He binds his son and lays him on the altar. Can you imagine that? And as he's taking the knife in hand, God stops him and says, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your own son from me. Now I know that your faith is true. And so James says, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Not that faith is insufficient, it's faith and faith alone that joins us to Christ. But they work together in that our works demonstrate our faith, our works prove our faith, James even says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now he's not contradicting Paul there who says we're saved by faith only. But instead he's saying that the faith that justifies us will always invariably be accompanied by works. We see the same in the life of Rahab. Rahab was considered righteous because of what she did. Because her deeds earned something, merited something? No, not at all. But rather because what she did the way she hid those spies, the way she sent them out safe, even the way she encouraged them by giving them insight into the heart of the unbelievers of Canaan, that all demonstrated that her faith in the Lord was real. And so James says, faith apart from works is dead, which is to say that true faith cannot help but reveal itself by works. So all of that shows that holy obedience, sanctification is inseparable from true faith. God the Holy Spirit who produces our faith will produce those works that change us. It is essential that we know that. It is essential that our children know that. How many people have walked blithely into hell thinking they were just fine. Because they were baptized. Because they were members of a true church. Because they knew when to stand and when to sit. But that won't save you. We need to know that. Every one of us, young and old. That won't save you. Sitting in those pews won't save you. Singing from that songbook won't save you. Only Christ will save you. And you receive Christ by trusting in Him. Wholeheartedly, completely, truly. And if you trust in Him, then you'll begin demonstrating that by giving over your life to Him. If you really trust Him for your salvation, then you'll trust that He knows what's best for the way that you live here below. You'll trust that He knows what's best for the way you interact with your friends and with your parents and with your boss. You'll trust that He knows best concerning the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your money. And if you don't trust Him for those lesser things, if you say, yeah, yeah, I trust Jesus, but I'm going to spend money the way I want to spend it. I'm going to do my job the way I want to do it, and don't tell me what the Bible has to say. I'm going to I'm going to have relationships with people that reflect my desire and my pleasure. And God can stay out of that. And you're demonstrating that You don't really trust Him for anything. It's our calling to show our children that. Show. We have to teach them that. We have to tell them that. But our words will mean nothing if they don't see it in our lives. Parents, you know you mess up with your kids. You discipline them out of anger rather than out of conviction. You tell them to do one thing and then you do the opposite. You are inconsistent in application of rules across children. Okay? When you recognize it, repent. And then do better. And when you do that, something amazing happens. Your kids see not only that you're not perfect, they already knew that. But they see what sanctification looks like. They see what repentance looks like. They see what the transformation by the Holy Spirit actually looks like and how essential it is. And they gain a template for their own lives. Oh, that's what I do when I screw up. I repent. I confess. I trust in the Lord to do better. That is what's inseparable from faith. And for those who do embrace that kind of faith, the kind that shows itself, the Lord even promises to reward us. That's the second point that we see from our our confession, that this is a holy obedience that is rewarded by our Father. The Bible is very clear that God takes note of the good works that we do. For one thing, the Lord says He will judge us According to our works, Matthew 25, Jesus says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, the saved from the unsaved, the elect from the reprobate. And he's going to do it on the basis of what they've done. Not whether any of them have done perfectly, none of them have. But their deeds will demonstrate whether they really belong to him, whether they have true faith. And so in Romans chapter 2, We hear God say through Paul, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So does that mean that the good works of some will earn them a standing before God on the judgment day? Of course not. Our works remain utterly defiled in this life. But by those good works, the Lord will see our faith. And by the unrighteous works of others, by the absolute lack of good works in some, the Lord will say, look, I know what he said, but his lack of good works demonstrates it was all a lie. In Second Corinthians 5 verse 10, we're told... We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God takes note of how we live and he will reveal on the judgment day what we have done so as to either demonstrate the truth of our faith or to demonstrate the lie. And more than that, he will reward us according to the things that we've done. The Psalms are full of that promise. Psalm 62, verse 12. I will... Render to a man according to his work. The prophets, Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Also in the New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew 16, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. But understand this well. You can't earn anything. We were created to serve God. Jesus says, if you did everything that you were commanded, you would still have to say, We are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was commanded. You were created to serve God. If you did that perfectly, which you won't, you still wouldn't have earned anything. You still wouldn't have deserved anything. That's just what He designed you to do, right? We were created to serve God. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7 God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. So if we do good we're merely doing what we were made to do. And if we do good well that's not really our work. That's the work that God has done in us and through us. Apart from the death of Christ and apart from the faith that God gives us we would be so enslaved to sin that we could do nothing that was good. The the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to obey the Lord. He's the one who empowers us to begin changing. So when we do good works, we're doing what God created us to do. We're employing the power He's given us. We can't earn anything. And yet God so loves us, so delights in us, that He promises on that day, I'm going to reward you anyway. He's crowning the gifts that He's given to us. How awesome is that? I will bless you. I will provide for you. Because of what I've done in you. He wants us to look forward to that. He wants us to be eager for that that glory that awaits. But even for that, He wants us to know we will give Him thanks. Now, Article 24 ends on a cautionary note. Because there is danger in studying the necessity of sanctification. There's danger that we might begin to rely, be it ever so little, on the things that we have done, that we might take comfort in our works, that we might put our hope in what we've done. And so Article 24 closes with a fourfold warning against that. The first part of that caution is that justification always precedes good works works that are truly good in the sight of God are utterly impossible for one who is not justified by faith in Christ. Romans 14 verse 23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Because you see, God cares about our reason for what we do. Unless our reason for doing good is to serve and glorify God, it's sin. No matter how good it might look, it's still sin. It's still condemnable to God. Jesus himself illustrates that in Matthew 7 by pointing to the fruit of a tree. He says a tree that's healthy bears good fruit. A tree that's diseased bears bad fruit. Unless a person's heart is healthy, whatever fruit he brings forth is rotten. But our hearts aren't healthy. The tree is not good until we've been joined to Christ and made right in him. That means our works cannot contribute in any way to our justification. Our righteousness comes through faith in Jesus alone. Period. End of sentence. Until we're righteous in Christ, we can do nothing that is in any sense good. Justification always precedes good works, and therefore good works cannot play a role in our justification. This first of all. Second caution. We are indebted to God for all our good works. For every bit of good that we do, we have to look on Christ and say thank you. Because apart from His strength through the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing that is good. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. We're the branches that bear fruit. But he's the vine that bestows upon us life and strength and all that we need for bearing that fruit. And so for every good thing we've done, for every bit of love we've shown to our neighbor, for every bit of love we've shown to God, we have to look at Christ and say, you did this. We're merely the vessels. So our works play no role in our justification. All the good we do comes through what Christ has done in us. And yet, nonetheless, caution three, as long as we remain in this life, as long as we continue struggling here below, we still pollute it all by sin. Lest we think that our deeds impress God, the Bible tells us, hold up. Hold up. Listen to what the Lord tells a church in Revelation 3 that's pretty proud of itself for what it's been doing. He says, you say I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Christ has clothed us with the right righteous robes of his perfection. But as soon as our hands touch something, because we're still wrestling with the flesh. Because we're still wrestling with our sinful deeds, we stain that which we touch. Right? So we dare not think that any of our hope rests in what we've accomplished, in what we've done. And then the fourth comfort. There is no comfort. There is no comfort. There is no comfort except that which comes through faith in Christ alone. Any other hope cannot be relied upon. In what would you trust? The works of your hands, they're insufficient and impure. The prayers of other people, their prayers can't save you, they can't even save themselves. The influence of powerful men, those powerful men hold no sway with God. The only place we can hope, the only place we can find life is in the mercy of God, who has revealed His mercy in Christ. Trust in Christ alone for forgiveness And for eternal life. That's the only place we can find hope. You see in all of these cautions. What we must recall always. Is that our works. While essential. Are secondary. Jesus alone. Can save us from our sins. Therefore we must look to him. We must rest in him. We must trust in him alone. To look elsewhere for even the smallest part of our salvation, is folly. But, to those who have faith in Jesus, you can be sure that obedience, sanctification will follow. Because God's will... How awesome is this? God's will is that you should be sanctified. That's why He left His Spirit in you. That's why He gave His law to you. God wants you to bear His image, becoming holy as He is holy, becoming righteous just as Jesus was righteous for you, obeying the Lord as evidence of the faith that you possess. That's what God wants for you, and what God wants for you, He will impart in you. This, then, is the message we must teach to one another and to the children God has entrusted to us by our catechizing, by our informal instruction, and especially, by the example we set before each other, we must show comprehensively that true faith brings forth holy obedience. It's an obedience that is inseparable from our faith, that is rewarded by our Father, and that is uninvolved in any way in our justification. This we confess, this we believe, and brothers and sisters, this we must live out, as a demonstration of our faith, and as the lesson which all of us need to take to heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You have willed to transform us so that more and more we might bear forth Your image before a watching world. Lord, only You can do this work. And so we pray that You would work powerfully in each one of us that we might have no doubt that you have done this, that you are changing us. And we pray that through that transformation, you would be glorified as we give you glory and thanksgiving and as those around us recognize your works within. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, we sing a hymn that reminds us that Though we live in a, a world, though we live lives that are filled with tumult and distraction and struggle, Jesus calls us in the midst of all of it to look to Him, to live for Him. So we sing number 459 as our, a reminder of the calling to look to Christ in the midst of all of it. Number 459. pray. Lord, we worship you now with our tithes and with our offerings. We pray that you would bless that which we give that you might be glorified through it. We pray that you would bless our deacons with wisdom in how they dispose of these gifts. And Lord, we pray in all of it that you would be glorified as your people acknowledge the precious and perfect provision that you have granted. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song is number 236. Number 236.
1: I'm oh,